5 BC to um, 590 AD, 85, And um, I'll have to make copies after that. So you can have it for now and we'll make copies after. Because <laughs> that's my last one. Um, but we're, we're, at, we're at 590 um, 5 BC. We're going to be there for quite some weeks as we go through this. Uh, initially, we're going to not spend a lot of time in the early, early history because we've already talked about the book of Acts. So we don't need to talk too much about it. But... Um, We do need to talk about a few things. Let's see. What do we need to talk about? We need to talk about the environment. History is not in a vacuum. By what I mean by that, everything is related. There's nothing that can say, well, this is just church history. It's not connected to anything else. That's just not how life works, is it? Everything is affected by everything else. The church is just as affected by all the different things. Oh, thank you. Um, around the world as anything else. Um, so we, uh, we have to take in consideration that, that the environment that we find ourselves in, uh, in 5 BC affects how Christianity spread. Or what will become Christianity? I guess when five BC, it's just not—it's a Jewish branch. It's not Christianity yet. But because of what the Jewish people have gone through in both um, with, with in the in the Roman world, in the Mesopotamian world, the Assyrian world, what they've gone through. It has opened up a situation for them to be, for Christianity to spread like it does. God, I'm convinced, doesn't like violence, mayhem, but he's used the persecution of the Jewish people, the enslavement of the Jewish people. He uses it to make it so that they're ready to be, um, for Christianity to be spread. It comes at, a, at the perfect time. Under Roman development, because Roman has come in and they've, they've made universal laws under the empire. The, the, it's, it's, you know, they have this, this uh, where you have things like uh, a unified law and a unified empire. So it's made it so that uh, the environment is, is favorable to, the, to proclaim unity of humanity under one group because... They're, um, they're fused together under one empire. And so we, we can't say that just because uh, the empire may have done horrible things in conquering people, they've also done some things that have, have made it like they've created roads much better than the roads we have today. They're not falling apart already. You know, some of these roads still exist today. Okay. Um, the, um, they, they, um, they, they, um, 
It, it is, it's, it, salvation is offered universal organism because uh, of the Roman world is, has, uh, has, has come together. Uni- laws unifying the people. So we have um, uh, individual rights under uh, Roman law. That is a, a thing that you know we 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 value as Christians as some of these un, un, these in, individual rights. Uh, that is something that was brought in justice and uh, to a, and Roman citizenship, which led to our understanding of Paul's discussions on um, on citizenships of of, of the church in, in in the New Testament is mirroring language that was in the Roman world as they were talking about Roman citizenship. So it's fascinating to talk about how they were, um, how the Roman uh, world has, 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 has allowed this religion to spread. And the free movement about the Mediterranean world, roads, boats, Ideas are freely welcomed in many cities. They have all these different religions, all these different, so that they, they can spread. It's an amazing um, uh, thing that, that um, and then on top of that, you've got the Roman army. As they are converted to Christianity, they take it wherever they go, including where they're conquering or where they're governing or where they're policing. And, and yes, they do all of those things. And, and, um, and as they spread, they talk about how the Roman gods have defeated their gods. And, because, and, 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 and this, this, this spiritual vacuum that gets left because of these other gods get defeated, becomes filled with Christianity. Um, as we study Roman your uh, religions, you're going to see things like Isis, Mithras, and um, other, other religions come up and say, well, there's similarities, but there's so many differences, you can't say they came from these. Uh, that's only if you take surface stuff, and a lot of that stuff is made up. If you go to TikTok... You go to Facebook and look at these things. A lot of them, they're just making stuff up. And they may not know that they're making stuff up. They were told. But if you go actual back to like the stories of Osiris and, and a lot of that stuff is just made up. That stuff that, not that it's not in the actual religion of the Osiris or of a, uh, of a Mithras. It's something that was made up or added later. Um, but it's not just... Um, but we also have to think that um, um, the Greeks also, because the Romans have have been so influenced by the Greco, the Greeks, that you also have this 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 environment that's rich with um, one language, the the Greek, the Koine Greek, the Universal Greek, and so it's 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 uh, allowed. Can you imagine Christianity spreading like it is if you have to translate it into every language? I mean, we're still in the world right now. We have groups like the Gideons or the um, um, oh, the, the, the different Bible translators and whatnot that are going out and they're um, 
the Wycliffe's Bible translators, and, and, and they're still translating into all these different languages. And they, there are still groups of people out there that have never, don't have a Bible. Some of them don't even have written language yet. We, we think that sounds so weird in 2022. But there are groups out there that don't even have languages yet, you know, written down languages yet. Yeah, and there's, there's, there's lots of different uh, groups out there that are working on this. Um, I've had direct in, uh, contact with the Whitcliffs and the Gideons that are, are both working on that as well. Um, but the, the idea that, you know, so, but under the Greco-Roman Empire, Greek has become the language of that area. Everyone speaks Greek. It may not be your home language, but it's the language of business. So everyone speaks Greek. So now, once they translate the Old Testament into Greek with the Septuagint, um, when they they start speaking Greek, when Paul's going out, he's speaking Greek in many of these places. You know, he speaks uh, Hebrew, Aramaic, and 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 uh, and Greek, and he takes Greek. He he puts it in Greek so that it's able to spread to all these affairs because they they understand and. Um, and then we have to thank, I don't know, good and bad, the Greco way of thinking, the philosophies, has actually destroyed a lot of older religions at this time period. They deconstructed their faith. That's, that's a popular term right now. They deconstructed their faith when the Greco philosophies came in. When the Greco philosophies came in, they destructed their faith, and Christianity came in and filled that void. Um, and so it's very, um, very important we, we look at th- that. We also have to realize that the, with the environment, um, the, um, the religious contribution of the Jews. The Jews um, have a... Um, even though they're a very small nation. I know sometimes we like, because we're so focused on Israel... Like, it seems like it's big in our minds. But have you ever actually looked at a map of Israel? <laughs> I mean, like a world map of Israel? It's a very small place. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, not, it's like a, it's, you know, one of the smaller states. It's, uh, you know, it's not even the size of Nevada. You know, it's a, I actually don't know what size it is. But uh, it, it's, it's a small place. Um, and, and, and yet it's, is the land bridge between Asia, Africa, and Europe. And so all this thinking goes through there and their captivities of Assyria and the Babylonians and the Romans that spread the religion of the Jews throughout the, the land. As they were spread out, they took their religion with them. That's what the diaspora is. We call it the diaspora, the spreading out. And uh, so it has taken Judaism with it and with it comes a, a sense of monotheism or at least henotheism uh, big words you guys remember what those means we've talked about it before monotheism is one god henotheism is one out of many henotheism is the idea that there's one but there might be more gods 
And most of the Bible, especially Old Testament, is henotheistic. There is, doesn't deny there are other gods, just worship one out of them. The idea of monotheism really doesn't start developing until after they've been taken into captivity by the Assyrians and, uh, and the destruction of the temple. Um, but uh, think Daniel. But um, that's when monotheism starts coming. Most of the Bible, however, is very uh, henotheistic. There's, you know, it doesn't matter if there's other gods. Worship the one above all the, you know, all the other gods. As I mean, think about the Ten Commandments. Put no god before our god. You know, it doesn't deny there are other gods. Said so none can look him in the eye. None are equal to him. None are. There's only one above him. There's no one above him. Um, and so, but as they have spread, they've taken this idea that there's mono or henotheistic into a world that is very polytheistic. Lots of gods out there. I'm going to argue we're still very polytheistic. Um, we don't call them gods anymore, but we worship all kinds of things. Well, we don't, we don't name them anymore, but we still, we still worship them. But, um, but they've taken that out. And they've also taken on out, as, as Judaism has spread, they've taken with them the messianic hope. The idea that a Messiah is going to come and bring some sort of salvation or freedom. Or, or, um, and it looks differently depending on which group of Judaism you follow. Um, but they've taken away the, uh, with them this messianic hope, which Jesus... Uh, you know, claims the Messiah, and Paul talks about him being the Messiah, that he's fulfilling this messianic hope that has been spread throughout the world. And so as the Jewish uh, people have gone out, they've taken along with these ideas that have opened up doors for um, Christianity to spread. And then one of their... Um, well, their ethical system as well. They've taken away their idea of sin, which is not in a lot of religions. I know we kind of like, what? But <laughs> the idea that some things are wrong is actually um, not in every religion. Uh, we think of it so common because we've taken the ethnic, the not, the, not ethic, the uh, ethical uh, Jewish mindset that uh, you know of sin and some things are against, uh, but some uh, a lot of some religion and and that spread with them. This uh, uh, Judaism brought this ethical system of ten absolute laws and and everything's based on these categories of these laws and and um, and there are sins and and impure hearts and and all that stuff was taken with them as they and that led for a spread of um, of God and it's not found in the um, many of the mystery religions I guess we should say don't have that kind of thinking you know um, uh, what else could we say um, one of my favorite things that they did that led to the spread of Christianity was something um, that we can thank the fact that we're meeting in this building firm, the synagogue. When you think about it, in a world before this, even in the Jewish world, most of them were 
establish where you would go to the temple to worship, right? That's where you did your worshiping. You might have family idols or whatnot you would worship at your home. Um, you know, your that you would pray to or something like that. But you would mostly go to the temple, and there would be temples in all the major cities of some god or another god or, you know, goddess or whatnot. And even in Judaism, it was originally the, the tabernacle, and then it became the temple. But as they were taken into captivity by the Assyrians, they came up with this wonderful new thing that is based off of something they had before that, but it started to develop more and more because the temple's been destroyed. And that becomes the, 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 what will become the synagogue. And we've come up with, and we've carried off that idea of synagogue into the modern church building idea as comes from that synagogue development. So as Christianity spread, they, they have this, this place where people gather and anything that has more than 10 men has one of these synagogues. And so they have these places. And if you don't have one of those synagogues, you actually have a place. Remember we talked about in the book of Acts where they had the place by the river where they would meet and they were even meeting there. So they had these places where they were gathering to talk about God. So it had this, and this is all over because the Judaism has, Judah, Jews have been spread all over the world. And remember, Paul goes to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. He's taking it to these places that are already established to discuss these ideas and to worship God and to, and so he's, he's so we, because we have these places all over, you don't have to say, well, God doesn't set up himself up a temple and then they have to come to him to find out about him. The missionaries are able to go out and go to these centers and, and go to these little places and then it spreads from there. So you have these little hubs that are able to be spread out and that's because of the synagogue system that has been established uh, by the, the Jewish people. And so as we talk about church history, we come into this environment where things are, everything just just Right? which, I mean, blows my mind, right? I think it should blow your mind, you know? Everything has lined up just right for this to happen. hundred years before, this couldn't have happened. hundred years afterwards, this isn't happening. This is the moment where it happens. Everything's just right. And though it doesn't seem like it's, it's you know, if you're living through some of this, you're like, this is awful, you know, persecution. Uh, we'll talk about persecutions as uh, later on. Um, you know, there's uh, uh, you know there, there's famines and, and anyone trials, and you're under another government's. You know, can you imagine? You know, you know, well, uh, you know, the United States. Uh, you know, was ruled by someone else, and you know, we're you know, or, uh, or you're a strict Nevadian and you feel like you shouldn't be part of the United States. You know, the, <laughs> um, you know that, uh, that idea that we should be ruled by someone else. And, 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 you know, and all these things, you know, you're going through it and it feels like it's a really bad time. And, and individually, it might be. But God's allowed all these things to, to, to happen so that at this moment, it's the perfect moment for Christ, for Christianity to spread. Like I said, if we come 100 years later, this doesn't happen. If we come 100 years earlier, this doesn't happen. This is the moment. 
And so they spread Christianity. And we've already talked a lot about how Paul took, and other people like Paul, took the Bible around. And I'm not going to repeat all of that because we've already talked about Acts. So we're not going to repeat all that. Um, So let's talk about what happens after Paul. (laughs) Um, This is a time period which we're going to be called, that's going to be called the early church fathers, the apostolic fathers. Um, And I have a handout. So let's go ahead and hand that out. Uh, Church fathers, there it is. keep one for myself. All right, um, so we've got this, uh, this handout where we're looking at the, and it's, it's on the board there uh, as well. Um, this is taken directly from that book I told you I was going to, uh, to use as my basis uh, to keep me from rambling and going too out of the realm of, thank you. Um, We know that um, you know the writings of the New Testament were completed just before the end of the first century after Christ, and um, the Bible is what becomes the Bible isn't something that's created; it's collected. And that's important because we we become. Um, it, it, it's collected and people, things fall out of favor and, and uh, so, so when you talk about how the Bible became about you know why we have certain books in the Bible and stuff like that we've already talked about that stuff in earlier lessons um, we've got to realize that, that this stuff you know comes out by some of these people they start listing what is the books of the Bible, what, what should be considered uh, godly ones. And these are men who knew the apostles and, um, and continued the tack of writing Christian literatures. And so they're, they're going to, and so you're going to, re- I'm actually going to point out some of the readings of some of these people and uh, not all of them, but um, they're going to have writings and letters and stuff like that that are very influential on the church, but they're not seen as scriptural. And one thing, most people have never read most of their writings, but they're so influential on the way we interpret the scriptures. 
the earliest ones are known as the apostolic fathers. Apostolic means to edify. Um, and um, one of the uh, first ones we got to talk about is Clement of Rome, also known as Pope Clement the First. Uh, did he have the word Pope in his title? Probably not. But they've, as he was the uh, leader of the Roman Church after the Roman Church became unified in, in the Catholic tradition, ca- what we call Catholic tradition. Catholic just means universal. Um, as ca- as the, the Roman Church became the lead church, they're going to go back. As, well, you know, Peter was the one who established it and this will be Pope Clement the first. Um, he'll be listed by Irenaeus and Tertullian as Bishop of Rome. Considered to be the first apostolic father of the church. We actually know very little about his life. Um, he's said to be considered by, uh, he's said to be consecrated by Peter. What's that mean? According to tradition, Peter made him the bishop, made him the head of the church. Um, so he's the second pope, according to the Catholic tradition. First pope being Peter. <laughs> Peter was the first pope. Second pope is Clement of Rome. Uh, for Clement the first. About the year 90, a, stir, a serious disturbance occurred in the church at Corinth. And, um, and Clement, um, who's at Rome, writes his first epistle to the Corinthian church to urge the Christians who were in revolt against the elders of Corinth to be subject to the elders. And this becomes one of the first writings of the apostolic era. It's um, his letter, Clement's letter to the Corinthians. And I happen to have a copy of it. So I put some, some of, uh, a little bit of there. So we'll read a little bit of, of it. Um, I figure most of you have never read uh, Clement's writing to Corinth. So I, I, I put a little bit on there, and we'll read uh, just a little bit. I think I've got four slides uh, for us to read through. Um, Owing to sudden and repeated misfortunes and calamities which have befallen us, we consider that our attention has been somewhat delayed in turning the questions dispute among you, beloved and especially the abominable and holy sedition, alien and foreign to the elect of God, which a few rash and self-willing persons have made um, blaze up to a frenzy and your name venerable 
and famous and worthy as all men's love has been much slandered. Now, as we read this, remember it wasn't written in English. This is someone's translation. For who has stayed with you without making proof of the virtue and steadfast of your faith? Who has not admired the sobriety and Christian gentleness of your piety? Who has not reported your character so magnificent in the hospitality? And who has not been blessed your perfect and secure knowledge? For you did all things without respect of persons and walking in the law of God, obedient to your rulers and paying all fitting honor to the older men among you. On the young too you enjoyed temperate and seemly thoughts to the women you gave instructions that they should do all things with a blameless and seemingly pure consequence, yielding in dutiful affection to their husbands. And you taught them to do the rule of obedience, to manage their household with seamless in all circumstances. Um, this is the introduction in which he calls you know, after the, well this is after the the introduction which he calls to remembrance the, the fine spirit of their former times. Um, Clement launches into a series of exhortations concerning such things as courage, and virtue, love, patience, humility, in order to inspire obedience um, to his later admonitions, which will be uh, and these. These, uh, based on the the citations of uh, numerous examples of the Old Testament, and um, Clement uses the um, the pagan. Well, I like hate that word pagan, but the pagan story of the phoenix in chapter twenty five as an illustration of resurrection. Um, but he's going to to use this um, is a uh, you know it's it's valuable in that it exalts the position of bishop or elder in the church and is in the first century it's going to be one of the things that leads to that apostolic uh, leadership style where you follow the leader of the church and it's passed down from person to person and this has some goods and bads to it. Why do you think it has some, some good things to it? Okay, tempting to manage them. And, and, and you, know, you have one person that's leading them and, and, and you have the apostolic secession that you can say this is uh, so we can, we're under one thing, we're managed under one group. Anything else? Consistency, absolutely. Anything else? What about bad? Why could this be bad? Take it away from God, how so? Well, in 
that argument is, is he would say, well, they did that to Moses. He's like Moses. He's the one leading. Um, but I understand that argument. Instead of looking to God, they're looking to man. Uh, which, my biggest complaint with that is that can open the door to corruption. You get one person that's ruling the thing, then you got one person that happens to come in that isn't good. And there's not as much checks and balances that way. Um, but it does show that by the first century, this kind of thinking that you have like your elders or your, your leaders in the churches, they are the ones that you're supposed to be listening to. And that it's going to establish this, this way of thinking, this obedience to, um, to the bishops and, and, um, and to... Uh, um, almost to the point where it's like setting up a emperor of the church and it's going to start developing in these letters as they start putting. Now, the good thing about it is that they have, so, well, Paul, well, according to tradition, Peter taught Clement so that you know that it's, you know, it's secure. The teaching is secure. And then Clement teaches someone else and that's secure. And, and, and so it's passed on like you would pass on uh, you know, knowledge student to disciple, student, uh, teacher to disciple, and you'd pass it on, which has already been established in, in, in like Moses and uh, to uh, Joshua and uh, and stuff like this. So it has some 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 traditions that are um, are good, I guess. Um, Anyways, according to tradition, Clement will actually be imprisoned under the emperor Trajan, where uh, he has a ministry among fellow prisoners, and he's going to be executed be buying, being tied to an anchor and thrown into the sea. Thus the reason why some churches recognize Cle- uh, Pope Clement I as the patron saint of mariners. Because he was thrown, tied to an anchor and thrown into the sea. So I'm sure in the Navy he's a popular one. Um, so yes. The next one, uh, Ignatius. Um, he will be the bishop of Antioch in Syria. He's going to be arrested by authorities because of his Christian testimony and sent to Rome to be killed by beasts in the imperial games. Uh, it is said that he was allowed to have visitors from the church of the, of the towns along the way and before his martyrdom he addressed letters uh, of thanks to the churches for their kindness to him. And the letters to the Romans is a plea that they should make no effort to save him from becoming a martyr. And so as we read, if you read the, the works of Ignatius, you're going to see thank you letters. You're going to see uh, letters of don't let me, you know, don't stop me from, from becoming a martyr, following after him. Um, I read from one of the letters of Ignatius. 
For I would not have you men, please, men pleasers, but God pleasers, even as you do, do indeed please him. For neither shall I ever have such an opportunity of attaining to God, nor can you, if you be but silent, have any better deeds ascribed upon you. For if you are silent concerning me, I am a word of God, but if you love my flesh, I shall, only, I shall again be only a cry. Grant me nothing more than that I be poured out to God while an altar is still ready, that forming yourself into the chorus of love, you may sing the, to the Father of Christ Jesus that God has uh, vouchified that the bishop of Syria shall be found at the setting of the sun, having fetched him from the sun's rising. It's good to set to the world towards God that I may rise to him. So in that he's saying, let me die. Let me be a poured out offering upon to God. I'm, you know, be, the only thing, the best thing you can do for me is be silent. And let me die. And that's Ignatius. There are seven of these letters um, written about, I guess, be, uh, about 11080. Um, some of authenticity of some of the letters in question, uh, but even without those, the teaching is clear what he's teaching. Um, He actually is going to oppose uh, to to oppose heresies, uh, Gnostics, which we've talked about Gnosticism, haven't we? Yes. Okay. Um, Gnostics um, they sought to keep Christ a as a purely spiritual being, free of any um, contamination of the uh, material body. And uh, he'll go against those. Um, uh, the epistle to Samaria, uh, Smyrna, sorry. He, he argues that um, this way of thinking leads them to deny the reality of Christ's material body and to state that only a phantom suffers on the cross. So um, he's going to go up against some of these false teachings that Christ was just a, uh, not a real body. Um, Anyways, um, and he's going to start establishing um, what are bishop, presbyter, and deacons. The idea of this this hierarchy of the church: the bishop, the 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 presbyter, and the deacon. And he's going to start establishing this way of thinking in his letters that will play out into the churches that will follow out. So very important character as we think about what happens afterwards.
Um, all right. Let's talk about Polycarp. Watch a small video and then we'll go, okay? Polycarp. Uh, personally, one of my favorites. Uh, Polycarp was the disciple of John, according to tradition. He's the bishop of Smyrna for many years. Um, and actually, the video we're going to watch is about what is Smyrna, because most people, uh, when I say Smyrna, they're like, huh? <laughs> um, so we're going to watch a small video on Smyrna. But um, Polycarp is to be the bishop of Smyrna, and he's going to be martyred uh, by being burned at the stake during his trial before the Roman proconsul. It said that he uh, could not speak evil of Christ, whom he had served 86 years and who had never done him wrong. So he's going to be uh, another bishop that's going to be martyred. Um, all right, let's watch this video. This video is actually 11 minutes long. So shake it out. Get comfortable. <laughs> Uh, apparently, our person in the back to hit the sound button has got a phone call. I'll go push the button. Paul was working in Ephesus. It's quite possible that the Christian movement got its start in Smyrna during the same period, all the more as it was a more important city and far closer to Ephesus than either Laodicea. Smyrna, faithful devotee of Rome. Readers of the Bible encounter the city of Smyrna only as the location of one of the seven congregations addressed by the glorified Christ in the book of Revelation. We know that one of Paul's associates, Epaphras, took the gospel to Laodicea and Colossae while Paul was working in Ephesus. It's quite possible that the Christian movement got its start in Smyrna during the same period, all the more as it was a more important city and far closer to Ephesus than either Laodicea or Colossae. The more ancient city of Smyrna was built around a defensible peak a few miles from the shoreline. It thrived until 600 BC when it was destroyed by the Lydian kingdom. Very little remains from this period. One can still see the foundation and a few columns from the Temple of Athena built around 700 BC, as well as the foundations of a residential area near the temple. After the Lydian conquest, Smyrna became little more than a cluster of villages until Alexander and his successors re-established the city this time at a small distance from the original site. Some scholars have suggested that the residents of Smyrna would have resonated with the glorified Christ's identification of himself as the one who died and came to life again. Revelation chapter 2 verse 8. The new city would not sit on the fortified hill but by the shore, so that the new city could enjoy the benefits of the natural harbor of its coast. While it would be significantly eclipsed by Ephesus, the harbor remained a great asset and kept Smyrna firmly on the trade map. Perhaps because it was a port city and enjoyed trading connections with the West, Smyrna looked more to Rome than to the Greek empires in the East. The city built a temple to honor Roma, a deified personification of the city of Rome in 195 BC, long before it was popular to do so. In 195 BC, the Seleucid kingdom under Antiochus III was at its greatest strength, and Antiochus was eager to establish his hold over all of Asia Minor. 
The city of Carthage in North Africa was still a great power in the West and a threat to Rome. The outcome of their struggle was still uncertain. Smyrna's declaration of its loyalty to the rising power in the West, as opposed to the established Greco-Syrian kingdom to the East, was a sign of extraordinary faith in Rome. This loyalty would be long remembered. Cicero spoke of Smyrna as among our most faithful and most ancient allies. Livy remembered the city as demonstrating extraordinary loyalty. Over the centuries, Rome invested significantly in Smyrna. Because the modern city of Izmir sits atop the Roman period city of Smyrna, very little of the Roman city has been excavated. The most extensive remains are those of the stage Agora, or Civic Forum. The city had been devastated by an earthquake in 178 AD with the result that the forum had to be rebuilt with significant aid from the emperor Marcus Aurelius. An arch still bears the portrait of Faustina the Younger, wife of Marcus Aurelius, in honor of the imperial household support. Similarly, the Agora was once decorated with statues of members of the imperial family. A statue base bearing the name of Fadila, daughter of Augustus Caesar Marcus Aurelius Antonius, still stands on the site. The Civic Forum is built around an open court of about 400 by 260 feet. On the west side stood a two-story colonnaded building built on the pattern of a basilica. A second probably stood opposite it on the east side of the courtyard. These appear to have been erected over the foundation of arched vaulted basements. The basement beneath a columned portico on the northern side of the Forum served as a shopping arcade and which could be entered from the main road behind the Forum so as to preserve the decorum of the basilicas above. An altar to Zeus apparently once stood in the center of the Forum, a reminder of the watchful care of the gods and the obligations of the city to its protectors. Literary references suggest that there was also two prominent temples in the city, marking the uppermost and lowermost ends of the road known as the Golden Way, a temple to Zeus and a temple to Sibylle, the Phrygian mother goddess and a patron goddess of Smyrna, to judge from coins minted in the city. Smyrna also had a cult of Dionysus, judging from a local inscription recording that a certain Dionysocles, son of Metrodoros, began to serve as priest of Dionysus during the presidency of a certain Alexander. New Smyrna was well supplied with water, brought by aqueducts to vast cisterns located on the hill above the city, and distributed onward to public and private sites throughout the city. A large theater was carved into the side of the hill overlooking the city and its harbor. While this is now the site of a sprawling residential area that prevents excavation, a few rows of the seats are still visible between the houses. Some of the more ornate seats reserved for dignitaries have also been recovered. Like Ephesus and Pergamum, its sister cities with whom it engaged in an ongoing sibling rivalry, Smyrna showed significant devotion to the Roman emperors in the form of worship, or imperial cult. This is not at all surprising for a city that prided itself on its particular loyalty to Rome and therefore to Rome's rulers. It would also make the question of loyalty, of faithfulness unto death, a principal issue for the Christians living within its jurisdiction, as they would be forced to choose between loyalty to Caesar and loyalty to Christ. By the early decades of the 3rd century, Smyrna had been awarded the honor of being named Neocoros, or Temple Warden, of a provincial imperial cult site, three times. The city was eager to publicize the fact, as for example in this coin minting. Smyrna had won her first Neocorate in AD 26, when she successfully petitioned the Senate for the honor of erecting a temple and establishing a cult for Tiberius, his mother Livia, and the Senate of Rome. The city received a second neocorate for its erection of a temple to Hadrian, 
emperor from 118 to 137 AD. Smyrna's enthusiasm for this emperor is evident from the titles used to describe him in this inscription found in the Civic Forum. The Emperor Trajan Hadrian Caesar Augustus, Zeus, Olympias, Savior and Founder. The city would win a third neocorate with her successful bid to build a temple to Caracalla, the son and successor to Septimius Severus. Several inscriptions found in the Civic Forum attest to the prominence of the imperial cult and its priests in this city. This inscription, in which Smyrna boasts of its greatness in the midst of other cities of Asia on account of its having received the honor of a neocorate three times, honors a certain Julius Menocles Diophantus, the chief priest of the imperial cult, for gladiatorial games that he provided for five days at his own expense. Another inscription is on the base of a statue of Claudius Aristophanes Aurelianus, a chief priest of the imperial cult prior to the city's third neocorid. In the middle of the second century, Smyrna would become the scene of a great drama of faith as Polycarp, the elderly bishop of the Christian congregation there, was brought to trial in the arena before the provincial governor. The governor might not have known the details of Christian faith and practice, but he knew that it drew people away from giving the gods, including the emperors, their due, and that this Christ and his kingdom was a rival to Rome and her emperors. This could not be tolerated in the city of Rome's oldest and most faithful allies. The governor therefore gave Polycarp an ultimatum. Swear by Caesar's fortune, change your mind, say away with the atheists. The local police chief urged the old man, what harm is it to say Caesar is Lord and to offer a sacrifice? But Polycarp could not bring himself to show disloyalty to so great a benefactor as Jesus. For 86 years I have served him, and he has wronged me in no way. How then can I revile my king who rescued me? Issues of loyalty to the emperor and the traditional gods were a major factor in the growing tension between Christians and the civic authorities throughout Asia Minor, and it is likely that these would have been on the fore of the trial to which the glorified Christ predicted that the Christians in the late 1st century Smyrna would be subjected in their near future. It appears based on the mention of slander in this oracle that members of the Jewish synagogue in Smyrna, whom John reproaches as a synagogue of Satan in Revelation chapter 2 verse 9, were speaking against the local Christian community in some fashion. This less-than-charitable label may be merely a verbal jab taken at a rival group, or it may encode a specific criticism of the Jewish communities throughout Asia Minor. After the destruction of the Jerusalem Temple and the suppression of the Jewish revolt in 66-70 AD, the Emperor Vespasian imposed a penalty. Jews throughout the empire would continue to pay their temple tax as before, but these funds would now be collected for the restoration and maintenance of the Temple of Jupiter, Juno, and Minerva on the Capitoline Hill in Rome. This temple can be seen in the background of this relief of Marcus Aurelius offering a sacrifice. It appears also here in the reverse of a coin minted during the reign of Domitian, Vespasian's younger son and Titus's younger brother and successor. The temple is portrayed as open, showing the cult images of Jupiter, Juno, and Minerva inside. The legend reads, Capit Rested, an abbreviation of the Latin for the Capitolium renovated or restored. John may have taken issue with Jews for accepting the terms imposed by Vespasian, allowing the tribute to the God of Israel now to be used to help underwrite the worship of the chief charlatan god of the Gentile world, Jupiter himself, whom John would have identified with Satan the chief of the demons who stood behind the many idols around him. John called the Christians in Smyrna, 
as in the other six cities he addressed, to take up a position of no compromise with the domination system of Rome, with its self-glorifying and self-deifying claims. Under the coercive pressure of being thrown into prison, the glorified Christ urges his followers not to yield to the demands to prove themselves loyal subjects of Rome and her emperor, but rather loyal subjects of God and his Messiah. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. The crown, better visualized here as a wreath, was a familiar image in Smyrna and throughout the Greco-Roman world. It was given to the winning athlete. It adorned the military conqueror. It also showed up in funerary settings, as in this gold-leaf wreath that once adorned a corpse, or in the twin wreaths adorning the memorial stone for two deceased sisters. Such wreaths were testimonies to a life well-lived, the value and virtue of which were sealed by death, not ended by it. Whichever of these backgrounds John had in mind, his message is clear. Dying for loyalty to Jesus did not mark one as a deviant or a loser, but rather as a winner, a conqueror, a person who lived and died virtuously, and who would continue to live and enjoy honor in the greater empire of God. So Smyrna, um, yeah, uh, one thing I was just watching this, and one thing that made me laugh is the, the word atheism. Do you see that? that he was, uh, what's wrong with, uh, he, Polycarp was known as an atheist because he was against the gods. There's, um, um, and that, that word, how that word has changed over the, the, the years, I um, uh, always makes me laugh when I see that. Um. Uh, so anyways, uh, that's Polycarp. We're going to pick up uh, with um, the letter of Barnabas. Um, next week. Let's see. And yeah, and then we'll go... We might get into persecution next week, too. We'll see. Any questions, comments, and concerns? We've got about five minutes. All those words, revenue, pastors, all that are stuff that's going to develop later. Um, on when we start, when we actually when we we split from the bishop, re, pope, uh, f- the format, and the, those words will become to be used instead of bishop because of the connotations with the ultra uh, of the the corrupt corrupt come put that quotation marks that corrupt church. Uh, Um, yes, depending on which denomination you are. The rules for being a reverend, being a, a bishop, being a, um, a priest, being all that depends on what denomination you are, the different rules and stuff like that. Uh, for example, um, to be a reverend, you have to be ordained by a church. Which church ordains you. Um, and then, but to be... L- known as a pastor and 
at least in the tradition I'm from, it's a licensing. Um, I was licensed first and then I was ordained later. Um, and the church does that. Whatever church you're at does that. Some denominations have where it's done by the bigger organization and some do it by individual churches, depending on. The online minister is one of those things that come about because of two things. Well, three things. One, um, the eternal dollar uh, sprung up that. Two, because in order to used to be, used to be, in order to marry, you had to be ordained. Now, that's no longer true, but you used to have to be married to be ordained. So they would pop up these online ordinations so that people that wanted to just marry people could get ordained. And without going through the hassle of actually being taught or being worthy of ordination. <laughs> um, because they wanted the job. Uh, so, you know, so there's that. And then on top of that, um, there's, these groups come up and um, you did not like the selectiveness of, of, you know, who gets to be ordained and who doesn't. Since we're all priests, everyone gets to be ordained and... And so they made these online things like that. I obviously am not in favor of online ordination. I uh, talks to a, a tax consultant. Well, I'm actually a reverend. And why did I become a reverend? Because I get a tax decut. Um, yeah, you're worth being in the ministry. I don't think he actually even believed in God. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, uh, but that's, that's where all that comes out, and that'll develop later on. Right now, we're at the bishop stage, and that's going to happen for quite a, quite a long time. Actually, we'll be in the bishop stage. Without, there'll be some branches that break off that we're not really going to talk about, just because of, we don't have time to go into every little detail. But uh, for the most part, we're going to do bishop stage until about 1500, so... Anything else? Right. At this time, they're, they are reading the Old Testament's the... And actually, that hasn't even been settled on yet. The, the, well, yeah, it has by the time we're in the hundreds. Around the 70s is when that gets solidified, what is the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the... Church of the Hebrew Bible, so 80s, 70s. And then what at this time, what we consider as still being compiled, though it's becoming as, as more of these uh, first fathers start saying, this is, this is the books, these are the books, it becomes more and more solidified as what will become the, the New Testament. So at this time, they're reading still different letters that uh, may or may not, may not be a complete letter or it may have different ones in it, but really early on it becomes pretty solid. If you go back and read like Tertullian, and, uh, you know, which is one we haven't talked about yet, um, it's by, by the second century, by, you know, by Tertullian, it's pretty much established this is what the Bible is. So it really happens really early. So it's not like there's a long period where we're like reading all kinds of crazy stuff. It's, it happens really quickly. All right, let's pray and be done. 
Uh, Yafael and I, our Father, we just praise you for uh, this wonderful time we have. We pray that uh, we just are, are blessed by our, our time together. Lord, I, I pray a special blessing on my family as, as we're struggling with sickness and the kids in the home. Uh, we just praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.